1: Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 48, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood.
2: And me Ravi Abbott. And here we are,
1: into the first episode of December. God, we've been doing it this long, and we haven't missed one Dan. I know the show nearly an entire year old. Oh
2: god. <laughs> and are
1: you feeling festive yet?
2: Uh, yeah, I've, I've been getting my presents and I've been getting Frozen going out, so yeah.
1: <laughs> you've been watching Frozen the movie then, no, Oh, no, no. I, you don't I, love
2: the type, Ravi. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've actually played Olaf on stage once. I got uh, pulled into a charity event and they were like, you're Olaf. I was like, I don't know what Olaf does, I've never seen this. <laughs> he lied. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so we are going to be talking about, I mean, you know, for me... Being a kid, it was always the time when you got new consoles and new computers and stuff like that. So in a bit, we are going to be talking about some of our favourite games to play at Christmas time, which, uh, you know, now we're into the festive season.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's kind of games that you always feel a bit traditional with. And, you know, it's always nice to play at Christmas. Exactly, yeah. The only
1: time you hear you play some games, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) So we'll talk more about that in just a minute. And of course, every week on the Retro Hour, we bring you a guest who is an absolute legend in the world of video games. And this week... We're talking Core Design, Bubba and Sticks, Rick Dangerous, a guy who wrote his first video game when he was at school. Yeah, and,
2: you know, a lot of the games he did kind of have influenced other games, like Mm -hmm. Rick Dangerous. A lot of people say that's Lara's dad. Yeah, yeah. So, you know...
1: (laughs) Well, Core Design, it was Derby, it was all around here, wasn't it? And actually, he used to work in a video game shop in the 80s, so there's actually a really interesting bit coming up where he talks about what it was like to have a Saturday job in a video game shop in the 80s. And we are talking about... Simon Phipps.
2: Yeah, Simon Phipps of Bugbone Sticks. Exactly. So
1: he's going to be coming on The Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Really good interview this week. Definitely worth hanging around for that one. And also, The Retro Hour would not be possible without your very generous support now every week. We do mention there is a little PayPal link on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. This is not a Patreon. It's not like a crowdfund or anything like that. Think of it as a little tip jar. So, you know, if you like the show... Drop a couple of quid in there. It all goes into the running of it and makes us, uh, you know, be able to continue doing the show throughout 2017.
2: Yeah, covers stuff like server costs and, you know, kind of SoundCloud subscription. And
1: all that yeah. stuff that adds up.
2: Yep. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, thank you so much to this week's donators, Stuart Thomas, Manuel Shaffrey, and Simon Pilgrim, who've all made really generous donations. Thank you, guys. Yeah, that's all at theretrohour.com. Right then, before we get into Simon Phipps, some really good stories this week. Now, we'll start with... Um, a little device I've quite fancied getting my hands on ever since I saw it in an AVGN video. And this is called the Retro Trio. Okay. And what this is, um, it's actually not the most exciting product to talk about, a power supply. Oh, yes, power supply. <laughs> PSU, woo! <laughs> yeah. uh, but this essentially means that you can power your Sega Mega Drive, your Mega CD, and your 32X all from one plug.
2: Oh, okay. Well, these are separate before then, because I've, I've not got these systems done, so... Well, they all need their own plugs. <laughs> oh, I, you've got 40 systems at home. How many different adapters and plugs must you have? Well, this is why this is quite
1: interesting to me, because I've actually, um, in my office, you know, I didn't have enough screens. I've only got about 10. Yeah. So I <laughs> put another one on the wall, and uh, then I put a Chromecast in there as well. Look, and I thought, oh, I've ran out of plugs. I've got nowhere to plug them in now. And I've got my Sega Mega Drive and Mega CD plugged into, like, a, a tower unit thing, you know, that holds, like, ten plugs. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Your My big house,
2: surge protector, yeah. They're all,
1: they're all surge protected, and I turn them off before I go away, obviously, or i going to burn the house down. Draining the whole power for the whole block. But the thing <laughs> is, though, I mean, you know, it, it, people look at that and they get, like, you know, it, it's not really the dumb thing to do, to have multi-blocks plugged into other ones, or even these ten tower things, you know, yeah. qualified electricians would be like, you know, you should, we should never use those kind of things. But really, I think, as long as you don't have any, everything turned on at once... Yeah. You know. Yeah. You can have like ten things plugged in. And if only two are on, it's no real worse on the you know, the, the, the power supply. I live in a modern house, so you know it's all fuse protected and all that. But this comes in because I, I had to unplug my mega drive and mega C D to plug this T V in. And I thought, oh, if only they had the same power supply, it would have been a lot easier. Oh, so wow. this this thing actually overcomes that. And annoyingly, the original power supplies on the mega C D and the Mega Drive are those, you know, big bricks that are on the plug.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Those massive ones. Like So is this a,
1: a separate company
2: then? Or are they like done a Kickstarter?
1: Or? This is actually just a third-party product that got launched. It's been around for a few years. Uh, the reason this made the news again recently is that actually it was um, quite hard to get hold of. Um, a couple of suppliers. Um, there's one in America. I forget the name at the top of my head, but they got them in stock um, last week, and they sold out in about three hours. Well, <laughs> so, okay, like, so there's a demand for these things. Yeah,
2: definitely. definitely.
1: And uh, apparently, there's going to be more stock of them made very soon. So I've actually linked to. There's a, a website called um, Retro CD Powered dot com and they're kind of a european and um uk supplier and i heard they're expecting some more
2: stock of it very soon so well also a lot of people buy consoles without power supplies you know they'll be buying them from car boot sales or whatever so this is a kind of good way to get one to fit everything
1: yeah, and, I, you know, you can kind of go to supermarkets and get those, you know, step-down adapters and stuff like that, but it's always better to have something that's properly made and you know it's going to, like, you know, yeah. measure the and right voltage. You don't
2: voltages. put the wrong polarity in or something and it just goes mad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: not what you want to do with, like, a, you know, a Mega CD or something no. like Model yeah. 1. Yeah. So, uh, but it's nice to have these kind of solutions. I know there is, like, um, like, the Commodore 64 has infamously got an awful power supply. Okay. You know, have you ever seen those, the ones that Commodore made?
2: No, no, I never saw those. Well, they're like... Um, I've only seen the cool commodore 64 remakes not the original uh bread bin ones well they had i mean the,
1: the cheapest power supplies and they're actually in um like epoxy inside so you can't even like service them or anything they're in like a block like inside you <laughs> just up. molded in yeah it. oh god to cool them down apparently stop them overheating they were that badly made but often you know with age they kind of output the wrong power and Most Commodore 64s that are broken now is because the power supply is like spazzed out and like spat all the mains voltage straight into the like the RAM chips and everything. Wow. So there there have been a few um, companies now that are actually making third party, you know, Commodore 64 power supplies and stuff too. So so I mean, really, you know, you've got these old hardware, these classics like, you know, the Sega and the Commodore stuff, but, you know, relying on 30 year old power supplies for them, especially ones that were made cheap and only meant to last like a year or something. Not a good idea, so uh, obviously there is a demand for this uh, retro trio. Useful stuff. Absolutely, so uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we did mention Christmas games. Christmas games are actually not all that
2: common anymore. No, you always used to have like a Christmas edition of something, but you don't seem to get them now. I guess it was kind of a way of stretching the budget, you know, to get get more out of the game. And I also think, I mean, I guess from a commercial perspective, having a
1: game that's only going to sell for like four weeks of the year, yeah. Probably not the wisest move to make,
2: is it? Yeah, you? that's it, but it's probably really easy to do. You just stick a little skin of snow on and then send it out, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, you know, it might be quite interesting to kind of cover a few games that we, you know, makes
2: us feel festive when we sit down and play Christmas time. So, any suggestions? Um, Even though it's not a Christmas game, I used to play Worms DC, oh, okay. on the <laughs> a Director's cut because you can import maps and stuff. And there was always a lot of snowy kind of maps that you could do on there, and that was always nice. And Toy Commander. Um, did you ever play that on the no. Dreamcast? It's kind of like you're in a house and there's, you're in toys and you can fly toy planes or tanks and stuff like that. Oh, I've that. seen a video and, of that, actually. Yeah, 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 everything's giant and it kind of seems really Christmassy just playing as toys, you know? <laughs> well, for me,
1: it's always um, James Pond Robocod.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of it's snowing in the intro, isn't it? So it's always Christmassy that one.
1: And you go and collect presents and stuff. I think. I mean, I, you know, it, that game. It's been a long time since I completed it, but I think kind of the the story is that you're helping Santa get his toys.
2: Ah, I think so. Okay. There's like
1: a Christmas element to that game. It just reminds me of being a kid, you know, sitting there with my A five hundred at Christmas time and the tree being up and playing that game. Um... <laughs> similarly there was a, a little known game I noticed LGR actually did a video on this it was given away do you remember the One magazine the gaming mag yeah in the yeah. 90s I think this was just to cover this for them the best bit about this game was actually the theme music which uh I couldn't find on YouTube in its entirety but um, there is a YouTuber called The Shadow's Nose
2: oh yeah The Shadow's Nose I know him yeah. that's him uh, this is a bullfrog demo
1: so I imagine like Peter Molyneux must have you know his company back okay. then and uh He's actually got a let's play of this with the intro music in, so I'm going to play a bit here, so if, if Shadow's Nose talks over it, that's where the voices come from. Yeah, yeah, we've met Shadow's Nose before in Amsterdam as well. Great bloke, did yeah. he? So, uh, yeah, there's your little credit in case <laughs> we had yeah. get a copyright strike. <laughs> but listen to this music. The game's called Psycho Santa. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. like... <laughs>
1: We, me and my brother used to put the disc on just to hear the
2: music. That's That sounds epic. Because I know there was a competition where they had um, games, like make Christmas-themed Amiga games. Okay. Quite a while ago. And I know there was, I think it might not have been Psycho-Santa, it might have been like Santa's Rampage or something. But there was one... That does ring a bell, actually. Yeah, yeah there yeah. was one where Santa went mental. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, I think it was just to cover this at Bullfrog Made, you know, it's, it's not the best game. Yeah. But
1: again, it's just very festive playing it. And also, you know, I remember like, you know, Christmas Lemmings, Holiday Lemmings.
2: Oh yeah, Holiday Lemmings as well. Yeah, there was, oh God, so many Lemmings games, wasn't there?
1: And uh, I always remember, you remember Cannon Soccer? Yeah, yeah. Well, Canon Soccer, the gave Boy in Amiga format. That was like a, a cover disc on the Christmas edition that they made. And like, you know, it's co- a combination of Sensible Soccer and Cannon fodder. And that was really good. And also Fire and Ice, and obviously, yeah, you know, we talked about that recently definitely. on the show. Christmas version of that wasn't there where uh, Cool he has got his little Christmas hat on. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got any good suggestions of Christmas games, we'd love to get a few of those on Facebook and Twitter. You can tweet us at Retro Our UK. One on the Super Nintendo as well called Days Before Christmas. Okay. Where Santi, basically people come to steal all his presents and he's pissed off and he's got to go around and get all his presents back. <laughs> so, uh, some random Christmas titles come
2: out. So totally. Love to and get a few of your suggestions. Good to have stuff to play this year. So
1: Yeah, yeah some new Christmas games, yeah. always appreciated. Now, um, this is quite an interesting story that you found. Hackers
2: have hit the San Francisco transport system. Insane. I've, I've never seen anything. Well, actually, a few years ago, there was a guy who managed to find a cable... Or, somewhat nobody still knows what happened, but he managed to find one of the cables that controlled the whole internet for a state in America and he basically cut it, and then the whole state went off. Now, this is absolutely insane. This is ransomware, but on a, a mass transit scale. So, um, if you know what ransomware is, it's basically hackers saying, We've taken control of your computer. If you want control back, here's a code. Yeah, you've got to pay some money. You gotta pay some money. But they did this with the whole of San Francisco's transit system. So, um displayed across all the messages um on computer screens was you hacked, all data encrypted, contact key, and it had an email address.
1: <laughs> <laughs> was this on like the big, you know, displays where the timetables are yep, and all that as well? Yep. Wow.
2: And they had to cut off all the um train machines, card machines, because all the staff got really scared of what was going to happen to people putting their credit cards in and stuff like that. So, you know, this whole thing shut down the uh, train system. It's insane.
1: And then, yeah, I'm looking at the story here. He demanded $75,000 in bitcoins.
2: Yeah, um, so so it would be untraceable to him as well.
1: You know, first of all, you've got to kind of think, how, how does that happen? How is there such a big security flaw in your system? You know, especially something on that scale that's running like trains, I mean, potentially could have done a lot of damage, you know, imagine the signal boxes and all that, and you could make a crash. You know, it's stuff?
2: scary, this, like the panic that could happen with that as well, because you even think the staff, like, would just be like, what the hell? But if you're a user of the <laughs> yeah. public system and it's just like, you've been hacked,
1: you know. And everything's computerised now, isn't it? It's yeah, like, you know, totally. It's so. obviously someone, you know, someone should be sacked for their computer, like security guys shouldn't, uh, you know, maybe yeah, not definitely, be the but, XTL, but
2: I just find it intriguing as well that they're using ransomware. That you know he's saying he's not just doing it for the lols, he's doing it for Bitcoin, which is really bad. Well,
1: ransomware is kind of like, you know, it's probably the the malware that frightens me the most. I mean, I I keep backups of everything. Mm. But I also think, like, you know, there are certain cases where, you know, there have been cases like this in the past where agencies, you know, government agencies and companies have had to pay up. Because yeah. a lot of these things... Built.
2: Sony's had to pay up for some of the stuff. They've actually got ransomware themselves quite a lot of time. And there's a whole argument, do we pay these hackers? Yeah. Because then we're enabling them and,
1: you know... Encouraging more, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... But then, I mean, a lot of them use like 128k encryption, you're never going to crack it, you know what I mean? So yeah. either you want your stuff back or you... Yeah, it's you pay like
2: CIA-level yeah. um, encryption. So it's, it's really interesting. And, but, you yeah. know, is this going to become a thing where hackers... Uh, you know, doing ransomware, doing it for random companies, you know, attacking infrastructure. It's People scary. got to up the game, haven't they? It's Definitely. like
1: well, even like, you know, I remember, you know, I was actually reading the other day, remember the uh, the very first um, computer worm, the Morris worm, have you heard about that? Yeah, yeah. In yeah, November 1988. And uh, there is the Computer History Museum. You can go and see the floppy disk. It's got the uh, the source code of it on there. Oh. But I was watching the news report on YouTube all about, you know, how that attacked. And obviously then no one ever thought that had kind of happened. It took yeah. everyone by surprise, but really... I kind of change everything, but it makes you realise even, like, 30 years on, But also,
2: even stuff like that was kind of... Had the intent of being uh, non-malicious. That
1: was more mischievous, wasn't it? Mischievous, Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, this is a direct... Kind of malicious uh, extraction of money, extortion. Yeah. Well, they even reckon crazy. you
1: know when, when that Morris Worm hit, apparently that, that cost um, the U.S. government reckon that you know that cost ten million dollars. You know that infection that they got that was in nineteen eighty-eight. Wow. So yeah, it's a uh, big business, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, bit definitely. shady. <laughs> right then, so um, Win UAE. That's a great emulator. Oh yeah. the... Uh, what did they used to call it? Useless Amiga Emulator. <laughs>
2: now it's very useful.
1: Yeah, then it was Unix Amiga Emulator. Yeah. And now it's universal, I think, isn't yeah. it? So uh, if you're not familiar with this, um, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this is, this is the um, the Windows version of UAE, which is the most advanced version. And um, Tony and the guys who make this, Tony Willen, they put so much in here as well. and They're always on um, EAB, the English Amiga board. Uh, and what's cool about it is, this project, users can just submit requests to them, and they be like, oh, I'll put it in. Like, he put, like, you know, PowerPC code in there, like, last year. Yeah, that was mad. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he just puts it in. Now, this is even madder, actually. He's now put American Laserdisc game support in there.
2: What? I didn't... Was there even Laserdisc stuff for the Amiga, had it?
1: Well, I was reading the forum. This kind of surprised me. Do you remember Mad Dog McCree? Yeah, this shooting Laserdisc
2: one. Yeah, cowboy game. That ran an Amiga 500. What? Yeah, so was the actual the arcade unit, and it just connected with the laserdisc. That's amazing! Wow. There's quite a lot of Amiga
1: la- laserdisc games. It was uh, Mad Dog, Mad Dog Two, The Lost Gold. Uh, Gallagher's gallery, space pirates, and who shot Johnny Rock <laughs> with oh. the titles on it. So, so do, you, do
2: you think that, that's probably going to be ISOs of these out, or there's going to be some kind of CD image?
1: Well, looking at um, EAB at the moment, I mean, they kind of they've got the interface to work. They have to kind of emulate this, you know, interface between the Amiga and the Laserdisc player. <laughs> they've got that working, and they've actually. Um, I think they're trying to find the files, but they've actually found the DOS version okay. has got these files in that they need, and someone's now got it booting Mad Dog McCree, apparently, on this code. Yes. so uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. I mean, because Mad Dog McCree, I've got it on the, the 3DO. I do remember playing it in the arcade, and, it you know, first time I'd really seen a video game that was like a movie. Yeah, and I, I'd seen movie. it on
2: Games Master, and I was just like, wow. What's yeah, that, I've seen know? that episode recently, actually.
1: Yeah. So I didn't know it ran on, like, a,
2: it's an Amiga 500 with a laser display and like and a Genlock, you know, to overlay the graphics and stuff. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, and that, that could work very easily, actually. Because I know they had a lot of small-powered systems, and then a fat laser disc comes yeah. off of it, you know, to do the brunt of the work.
1: Well, Dragon's Lair was a laser disc game, wasn't it, in the early 80s? Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So uh, I've never had a laser display though. I quite fancy one now.
2: Uh, they're really nice aesthetically. When, when was the first time you saw a Laserdisc? When was... Probably about, I remember in the early 90s,
1: there was actually a shop I used to go to called Chips, like a video game shop on like okay. a weekend. And they, for a couple of years, they had like a few arcades and like, you know, you go in there, get like Mega and Mega Drive and stuff games. Out the back, they had like a movie memorabilia bit. Oh. And you went in there and they had like a big popcorn machine in there and there was like loads of Laserdiscs. I remember my friend Ricky at school, like his dad, he was like a guy, he bought... Any new gadget that came out, he had like a CDI and CD TV, or like at the time,
2: guy, yeah, yeah always. Yeah. You know,
1: single daddy was, you know, with his son, he had a bit of money and that. So, um, he'd just buy loads of new stuff. And I remember we got a laser disc player, and I went around my friend Ricky's and like uh, he had like Ghostbusters two and like Batman and stuff on laser oh, wow. and he had to like he'd watch like you know forty five minutes of the film, <laughs> have to get up and turn it round like the disc <laughs> to watch it. But
2: yeah, I, re- I remember going into an old hi fi store um, in my local area. And then just having all these beautiful hi 5s But then suddenly, I was like, what's this? And it was like a big video vinyl player. And actually, the early model, you could hear it or as spinning. it was going round. Okay, Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. D- I don't know if it was the early versions or something, but it, it seemed really cheap.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> Probably to make, not to buy, yeah. yeah. But it was like, uh, I just think they look really cool as well, though, because... A lot of movies had great artwork, but even like you know on a VHS, it was small, mm. and even like when DVDs were even smaller. Yeah. But Laserdisc, it's like it's basically. Final size, isn't yeah, it? twelve inch. Yeah. It, it looks so, like yeah. a big CD, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've always thought they're really cool, but obviously when I was a kid, they're way out of my price range. I've oh got another thing for us to start collecting, Dan. God, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen there, there are guys on YouTube that collect them, aren't they? And they've got some really impressive collections. Techmoan? Does he? Does he have oh the yeah, he's got them? he's
2: got every obscure weird format that's ever come out. <laughs> yeah. So.
1: Yeah, there may be something to look into next year. I've got no idea what the prices are of them these days, but I imagine they're already going up, I imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm sure you'll be able to find one in a charity shop somewhere.
1: <laughs> you, know, you say that. I never find anything good in charity shops. Most of them can't even take electronics I don't think these days, Oh, they? mate,
2: uh, you're going to the wrong place. I found uh, some great stuff. Uh, Doom, collector's additional sealed and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah.
1: See, my boss at work today, he was telling me, he said, oh, a friend of mine has got a Super Nintendo from, like, uh, you know, uh, a charity shop. And he was like, Oh, I think you paid over the odds for it. You paid like 25 quid. And I was like, Dude, that's like, the, you have like three times that, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, on eBay. So that right, I'll give you deal. some charity shop tips later. But yeah, I think, you know, maybe I'm going the wrong ones. I did find a Dreamcast keyboard in one once.
2: Oh, that's cool. For like a
1: pound. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but the only thing I've ever found, apart from that,
2: copies of like FIFA on the PS2. And go to the ones that are full of old ladies. Those are the best because there's no young people around to get the electronics. So you have like the pick.
1: Neo Geo, you can have that fifty p. Yeah, that that's
2: it.
1: <laughs> so if you found any good bargains in charity shops, that'd be quite interesting to find out. You know what you've picked up because I do hear stories, and I always think, oh, why does that never happen to me? What I to like that? Yeah. Now this is a, a pretty sad day, you could say. Thirty years. The Commodore 64 held the crown as the biggest-selling personal computer of all time.
2: But it's about to be overtaken by the Raspberry Pi. That's no surprise. If anyone was going to do it, it's going to be the Pi, isn't it? Yeah, i got three of them sitting in my drawer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you probably count for half of this sales. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's about to hit 11 million then. Yeah, massive amount. And um, the guy, the head of Pi, <laughs> Dr. Eben Upton, has received a CBE. And also, he's he's said some really good stuff here. And it's uh, one of the main things that was probably the biggest surprise for them was that they were able to build them in the UK as cheaply as they would in China. Oh, so they're all built here, are they? Aren't yeah, they're all built.
1: Cool. Okay, interesting. But that's awesome. I mean, 11 million is, you know, it's a big number. And the Commodore 64, I think, you know, there are estimates that it sold anywhere, anywhere between 12.5 million and 17 million. So I don't think there's any, like, real concrete figures, but... If yeah. it's at the lower end, I mean, the pie will probably overtake that, you know. I imagine we'll probably do another Raspberry Pi in the next few months.
2: Oh, definitely, because there's uh, this other one, the orange pie, that's a, a kind of more souped-up version, so they're probably going to try and soup themselves up a bit more and get a bit more power out of the machine.
1: Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the saying here, um, it would be a nice thing if we can do a couple of million. It would be sad if 11 million is where we stop, but um, they must have more plans. But if we get past the Commodore 64, it's then in third place after the PC and the Mac.
2: Did you ever think it would be this successful when you first heard of it? I always thought it would be because I wanted one as soon as I read about
1: the Raspberry Pi. Yeah. You know, I thought yeah for hobbyists and hackers and that it might be a cool little gadgety kind of yeah, device, but, but
2: mainstream. Yeah, did I, I
1: didn't think it. You know, obviously a big use of the Pi has been in education and training kids and all, which yeah. I think is cool. But yeah, I didn't kind of um, yeah think it would go into that market. But also, Linux
2: TV boxes. Yeah, everybody I know from young to old ladies have a Raspberry Pi in are doing, doing coding on yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but it's it they're so
1: cheap. I mean, just like you yeah. said, you've got like three. I've got three of them as well at home. I've got like, you know, my Raspberry Pi model one's in a drawer. I don't really use it anymore. I might stick an FTP server on it or something. But it's like the disposable computers really, I suppose, aren't they?
2: Yeah, totally. Like I was thinking the other day, oh, what should I do? Should I create like a little tour router with it? Or mm-hmm. should I create a radio thing with it? And there's so many little... Discoveries and projects you can do with it—it's it's great. It's brought that whole hacking and playing with computers back. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you know. you, yeah, you're right there. I mean,
1: you think like you know, back in the like, the 2000s, for example, computers really became a commodity, didn't
2: they? An, an appliance. Yeah, something that's in a metal case that you don't get into.
1: Yeah, an Excel like, box or a, or a web browser. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, the Pi, I think you know, it's kind of going back to that like like 70s, early 80s. You know, a machine that you buy to mess around with the computer yeah. and see what you can do with it. Do crazy projects. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are. I mean, you know, even on the Raspberry Pi's website, you go on there, the official, the Pi Foundation site. There are uses on there, and there's so many different things. Everything from obviously weather stations. So, what makes a weather station with a Pi? But even,
2: you know, big companies taking notice, like Amazon mm-hmm. and releasing the Amazon Echo software for the Pi as well. Yeah. That's really
1: cool. Windows, you know? Windows on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Microsoft released Windows 10 on it, it like Elm Edition. It's like, and, uh, you know, well, they're saying here, you know, that 11 million would be a sad place to stop. And obviously, The Pi's recently had a bit of an annual schedule, hasn't it? So it's usually in March and your model comes out. So they
2: must be working on the Raspberry Pi 4 for early next year. Oh, God, I'm going to have like every year worth of Pi until the (laughs) Raspberry Pi 30. (laughs) But again, it's like,
1: yeah, it's only like 25, 30 quid, I'll get one. Actually, I've spent about two grand on pies in the last day. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, obviously, if the uh, Pi 4 does come out next year, they're actually my most popular videos on YouTube, you know. Really? Yeah, Yeah. my Raspberry Pi videos. so um, I'll be there on day one. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Upload it. Right, thank you so much for checking out episode number 48 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from your favourite podcast clients. And now, for the next 45 minutes or so, this week's interview is so good. Let's get the history of core design, games at Bubber and Sticks. And we've got Simon Phipps. And we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's special guest, Simon Phipps. Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Uh, no, you're welcome, Dan and uh, Ravi. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, uh, we're going to get into um, you know some of the highlights of your career in just a moment, but we thought it would be really good to go all the way back to the start. Where did it all begin, then? What was your first experience with a computer? Um, first experience with a computer was
0: 1981. 1980- um i was uh, at school uh, 81 i would have been 15 and my mate philip basker told me that he'd got a computer and his his him and his dad had been making a zx81 um out of a kit from an electronics magazine this is when you kind of just bought all the bare bits and pieces yeah. and assembled the thing and so i went round uh, to his house um uh, at sort of age 15 after school and it was like let's have a look at this thing and there it was this little tiny piece of plastic plugged into a black and white tv um the screen hit static every time the display updated and you were <laughs> able to type stuff in it and make it happen on screen now for me i'd always wanted to uh make movies and stuff like that i'd always been fascinated with animation since i was really really tiny um but uh Parents never had um, the money to afford a uh, cine camera or eight millimeter or anything like this. So when I saw this, this was like a way of getting something onto your TV and that you could make do stuff. Um, and I remember him showing me a 1K um, Space Invaders. Um, the 1K Space Invaders was literally it was I think it was a H moving across the screen, some A's moving down the screen, and as I say, every time the screen update, there was a burst of static, and then it, it moved. And I remember saying to him, you know, so can I change what those things look like? You know, because I've i got that sort of uh, thing in my head, sort of thinking, well, you know, I've seen Space Invaders in the arcade. Uh, maybe you could change the graphics. It was like, yeah, you could change those A's into maybe B's or C's or whatever. And I was like <laughs> And so that's where it came for me was this opportunity to to take artwork and put it on screen and and, and actually make it move and and be able to manipulate it. So I got fascinated with that, um, started playing around with the Commodore pets that we had at at school. And then um, I was looking at computers. And uh, at the time, there was the Acorn Atom that uh, Acorn computers had coming out. And that was really cool because it had color and and stuff. And then on the horizon, there was uh, Acorn producing the BBC Micro. Um, And so it was one of those sort of things I was like, right, well, you know, I'd I'd like one of these Acorn atoms because the BBC Micro is really expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, my parents turned around and went, look, you know, um, you really want a computer. We'll put I think it was £100 towards what you've saved up from your uh, paper rounds and stuff. um, And you'll be able to get a BBC Model A. So May 16th, 1982, which was my 16th birthday, I um, uh, went to, uh, my no, my cousin went to a local store that's only a couple of miles down the road and picked up one of their first five BBC microcomputers.
1: BBCs uh, were very expensive as well, though, then. You must have done quite a lot. I of know. Yeah, I think it was
0: 299, <laughs> I think it was. And I'd, I'd been s- sort of saving paper round money for years and stuff. And my parents actually put towards it as well, kind of thing. And it was You know, I mean, when you actually calculate it, it's like the equivalent of buying a really high end PC, you know, sort of thing. I grew up, we didn't have that that much money to to fling around. So it was a a really big deal. And so I'd always sort of set my sights on the acorn aspect. My parents were like, we'll put some money towards it as well. I got this 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 box of wonder, you know, sort of (laughs) thing. And all of a sudden it was like, right, what can I do with it? And so you 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 played Planetoid and and Snapper, which were arcade perfect clones of Defender and
1: um, and Pac-Man, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: And then it was like straight into the basic. So then what I then did was uh, spent a lot of time teaching myself how to program in Basic, draw circles and stuff. And this was a wonderful thing about it It was um, having grown up in a in a, a world where you know art was felt tip pens, taking the, the back ends off them and scrubbing them all over the paper to try and get a decent sort of colour fill or whatever, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There I was, I was able to paint with light and all the colours were like super saturated and bright and wonderful. And it was like, this is, you know, magic in a box. At that time, I think I'd seen Jetpack on the Spectrum. Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, I fancy making a little man that uh, with a Jetpack on. And so I, so I wrote this game and uh, at the time, um, I was doing this, so this would be in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was friends with a chap named Stu Greg. He c- c- came around round to my house, and I think it was probably because I was the kid with a computer, and we got on and stuff like that. So we'd have evenings where we'd be playing things like Chucky Egg on the on the BBC Micro and stuff like that. And I was writing this little game uh, with the the uh, Jetpack. On one day, said, you know what? You should send that to a
1: to a publisher, see if somebody could do it. I'm like really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you could do so I was like oh well. Had you been reading about like the you know the other kids at the time that were like sending games in and all of a sudden like getting full-time jobs and you know there was all that kind of like you know bedrooms to millions kind of stuff going on back then wasn't there?
0: Yeah you know sort of thing and I was like well okay then so I bundled it on a tape and I sent it off to ANF Software and Micropower over in Leeds and uh, ANF software came back and said with a very official sort of uh, letter saying, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do this. We only accept uh, games that are 100 percent machine code because of our protection scheme and piracy and all this. lot." Like, I was like, fine. OK, whatever. Um, and Micropower came back and we we're like, oh, we love this. Um, we'd like here's a list of 10 changes. If you can make these, we'd be really interested. And um, so they they took it on and. Um, Uh, came up with the name jet power jack for it so there i was at uh in the middle of my a levels uh at sort of uh 17 18 um and i got a a a game out on the bbc micro on tape
2: did you think it would be a career at that point when you initially made the game no it was just it was
0: just a thing that i did and um the uh, interestingly, at the time, I was doing my A-levels, which were uh, maths, physics, and chemistry. And what I found was my pure maths teacher was also the computer teacher. So half of my pure maths lesson was, Simon, could you just come in the back here and just um, show me how to, uh, you know, set up a printer on the BBC Micro? I'm having problems with doing this, that, and the other. So gradually, my maths education nosedived, and I spent more of my time talking and spent it, you know, in the computer room, helping my maths teacher get prep so i got to the end of my uh, end of my a levels and completely messed them all up my plan was to go off and do computer science at a big university and i got some really lousy grades but i'd had a great time doing all this computer stuff and things like that kind of thing uh, and uh, you know of. So, and if there's one thing that i've uh, you know now having kids i've turned around and said to the pair of them you know Take the subjects that you really love, because that's what's going to get you furthest. Not what you think you should
1: be doing. How supportive um, were your so, parents at the time? Then were they very supportive of your decision? Um, they, well,
0: they 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 just wanted me to have a really great education. So I think the thing is that I was uh, they never never really they never really understood computers. It was a thing that I did up in my bedroom, and um, and they were just sort of like, whatever you do, get your education. And of course, in my brain at that point I'm thinking well I can do maths and physics and chemistry and that's what you should do you should get a solid education. So anyway I got to the end of my A-levels and my one backstop uh, was the uh, Polytechnic in Nottingham Trent Poly which accepted me and in fact weirdly enough I'd done all of the rounds of all the universities and and been to Trent Poly and the people at Trent Poly were lovely. So I had a wonderful time and, and all of the lecturers were all X industry. So they were going, you know, this is what a computer does out in ICI. This is what a computer. So I had this wonderful sort of like documentary on all these amazing things that were really fascinating um, that I just sort of sunk myself into. I had a middle year in uh, in my in my course, which required me to go out into industry. And one of my lecturers came to me and went, look, your, computer, your programming stuff is up there. And it's like, well, yeah. <clears throat> I kind of have already published a game and stuff like this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, we've got an opening at IBM. I was like, okay, oh, wow. yes, yeah, so IBM in Nottingham. Uh, I was like, oh, that's cool. This is local. Um, it's in the marketing department. What do you think? And I was like, well, you know, IBM That at that time was like somebody going, you're going to go work for Microsoft or Apple. And uh had, had an absolute blast. It was completely different. It was uh, working in a big professional office with, you know, stripping down PCs, putting them back together, organising events. I, I got the opportunity to use my art skills on newsletters and bits and pieces, and it was a complete break for me. And uh, at the end of the year, they said, oh, you know, if you want to come uh, come back, we'd be only too happy to, to have you when you finished your course. And I was like, me, work for a giant American multinational corporation? Nah, probably not, <laughs> but thanks very much. Went back. I was working uh, in my spare time at a computer shop in Derby, a co- uh, computer shop called First Byte, yeah. and there I got to know all of the lo- uh, all the guys that uh, that hung out on a Saturday and talked tapes and stuff like this. Um, so I finished my uh, Trent Poly course and I was like, "What do I do?" And then I got a call from a friend of mine, Terry Lloyd. Now Terry, I'd known for years. He was one of the regular guys that um, used to pop into First Byte computers in Derby and was like one of the Guys that you just always see around the, the shop at First Bite. He'd first turned up as a, a customer, then ended up working in the store and, and everything. And eventually, he and a group of guys that used to frequent the store himself, Rob Toon, Andy Green, and Chris Shrigley had all got together and written a game called Bounder for, uh, well, actually, no, the, uh, cri- sorry, cri- get this correct. Chris, uh, Rob and Andy had written a game called Bounder for the Commodore
1: 64.
0: Mm-hmm. They actually in uh, a monitor because they actually didn't have an assembler. So they literally sat there and hand-coded an entire game and its graphics by turning it into numbers and poking it into the memory.
1: And on the Commodore 64, got, that was hardcore because the basic was terrible on the C64. Oh, absolutely,
0: it? yeah, and and say so they didn't even have an assembler. Yeah, so it was literally just going into memory and just going like that. So you know, absolute respect to them because it's just insane. Even back then, it was insane. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: uh, and then um, Terry got a uh, gun and joined them and started doing graphics for things like Future Night and Crackout and all this kind of stuff. And I got a got a phone call from Terry going, oh, sometimes sometimes you still." kind of drawing art and stuff like that. We just need somebody to do some freelance graphics for us. I was like, yeah, okay then. Um, So I quickly put uh, together a load a disc with a load of stuff that I'd drawn on my Atari ST because I'd kind of gone on from uh, BBC Micro to uh, uh, Amstrad CPC because that had a a, a nice um, uh, assembly uh, cartridge called Maxam which allowed you to write. Z80 in line with um, basic like you could on the beep.
1: It's quite then, quite interesting uh, that you swerved the Commodore 64. Then what, did did you not find that an enjoyable machine to work on?
0: The thing was, it was it was quite impenetrable for me. It's always been about the tool that allowed me to make something, rather than been the the entertainment system. So if you give me if you out of the out of all of the stuff that was there for me, the Amstrad was the thing. Once once I saw it had got MaxAm, the Commodore was this. You know, I mean, having sold the things in uh, and spent oh, days, weeks of my life with non-turbo loading tapes of the store and <laughs> its wishy-washy graphics, I really wasn't a, a fan. You know, I mean, I, I knew it sold a load and I, I spent many a happy hour at Terry's house playing a Commodore 64 uh, on a Sunday afternoon where it's like, OK, then we'll play two players, Spy versus Spy and all this kind of stuff and all the latest uh, things but as as something to own um, it didn't offer me anything uh, uh, to, to actually um, uh, to create anything whereas yeah. when the Amstrad came along it was like oh right I know what I've been doing with the BBC this is like a Z80 based BBC micro and I can now learn Z80 and stuff so I, I dabbled with a load of, a load of stuff like that kind of thing because and this has always been a, been a thread of mine is um, I enjoy games. But I enjoy making games and making things much, much more than I do playing them. Um, I'm hideously bad at technical manuals, those big things full of guides to registers that the genius guys that I work with and have over the years can pick up and go, oh, yes, if you interrupt the so-and-so and and this, that, and the other event, forget it. (laughs) Um, But once I've got into the machine, the, the, the logic side and everything like that, I can get my head around
1: well, before we move on from first bite, I thought it might be quite interesting just to kind of get a picture of what went on in like a mid eighties computer store. Then, were we more dealing to like, was it the public or was it more like corporate work you were doing?
0: Oh no, it was it was uh, straight uh, straight to the uh, straight to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, it was you know uh, all all the things that you remember of a, an eighties computer shop, uh, Dragon Thirty Two. Uh, BBC Micros, um, Commodore 64s, Amstrads, and kids coming in on a Saturday going uh, ten, print, poo, twenty, <laughs> go to ten, and then running out of the store. I was probably one know, of those kids. Of, yeah, the 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 big thing about that was lots of sort of like parents coming in with uh, kids where they were buying a computer for education, but you could see in the in the kids' eyes there was like, I want to blow up spaceships. <laughs> um, <laughs> or situations where you'd have someone coming in and buy and and, and uh, sort of wanting to buy something that was sort of inappropriate, and I, I do remember spending a lot of time kind of going, no, you don't want this. You're better off with one of these things because that suits what you do, and then you'd kind of wait a few weeks, and bless them, they'd come back and actually taken your advice, and then you'd see them forever after that. So the, I, I do remember there were a few bits and
1: pieces. It's got better graphics to help with your homework. Yeah, you know, sort of thing. It was
0: all, it was all, all, all of that, that sort of stuff. Big racks of uh, of, of cassette tapes uh, with a little lock and key that you could kind of pull out. And actually, one of my fond memories was. Uh, in those very early days um, my friend Terry coming in as a customer at that time when the next big game dropped whether Jet Set Willy or whatever it's going is it in yet is it in yet you know sort of thing and that kind of excitement for the for the release of the of the next thing you know sort of thing and stuff so yeah it was it was all of the stuff that you remember I got a little bit of staff discount on on the uh, on the title so BBC titles were a little bit more affordable, and also the other one as well is you, you know, kind of I got exposed to games on the uh, Spectrum and the and the Commodore sixty four that otherwise I owning one computer or whatever you had, so you know you kind of got to see them. Uh, several things that uh, little sort of like memories that do uh, do exist. Forty five minutes trying to slow load a copy of China Miner.
1: Well, that sounds fun.
0: Those, you know, <laughs> this tape it won't load, and you, you know that people have bought stuff, probably fiddle around with the tape, or what, uh, what you know kind of thing, and brought it back, and were trying to psych you out because of the fact that it would take so long to load in the days before turbo loaders. So you're like, okay, then, right? Well, let's test it, and you put it in, you know, <laughs> clean the tape, you clean the tape heads, and all this kind of thing, and then send them back out the door with the tape that we're going to try and get, you know, get a refund on. Uh, all those kind of turbo loaders. The summer of 1984, listening to nothing but the Commodore 64 Ghostbusters title theme on a loop. <laughs>
2: Ghostbusters! Oh,
0: six days a week for six whole weeks. That was bonkers. Does it still make you feel um, sick
1: hearing that now?
0: <laughs> oh, probably. I'd I, a long time. Um, yeah, I, uh, I a slightly earlier mo- uh, memory was buying my MicroVitec RGB monitor for my BBC Micro and having to lug it by hand, by myself, all the way across Derby to get it back to my car. Yeah,
1: they, they weren't like um, those LCRTs, were they? Make sure oh, you don't drop monstrous. it. <laughs> you
0: know, it was heavy anyway, and then in a big box. So, yeah, that was a that, that was a thing. Well, so, mo- moving on
1: from first by then, this is obviously when like the gremlin graphics um, kind of era of your yeah. career started. So how did the job start there then? What what was the, oh, uh, so, the yes. stage of that? So, yeah, there I was. Terry phoned me up and said,
0: hey, you know, we'd... Um, like you to uh, you know are you interested in doing some freelance graphics so I was like go on then so I put together a disc drove through to Terry's house on this awful uh, the snowiest night I remember the car was sliding all over the place to deliver him this disc and uh, got back home and then the following day it was like oh I've, we've shown it to the guys would you like to come in and have a chat I was like okay then so I've got him a car I think the subsequent uh, day and a uh, subsequent evening and um, arrived in Derby at about six o'clock to um, Saxon House at the back of uh, um, just off Friargate. And there in this little tiny office uh, with all the sort of uh, foam core tiles in the ceiling, the grey carpeting and big long. It was actually two offices that were sort of knocked her into into one. I met Greg Holmes, Dave Pridmore, Kevin Norburn, my mate Terry. Rob and Andy and uh, and Chris, who I'd known from the uh, from the shop, and uh, started chatting to them. And said, "Oh yeah, this is what I can do," and things like that. Thinking I was going to get like a little freelance spare time gig or whatever like that, and I was went away. They were all really really nice, and then uh, I got ph- phoned up the following day, going, um, "Would you like a full time job?" I was like, "Really? What in games? Like yeah, as a graphic artist." I was Okay, working on Masters of the Universe, the movie, the (laughs) light game for the Atari. So um, I can remember sitting around my mum's kitchen table with Jane, who is my wife. She was going, Right, okay, what do we think? I'm going to have to take a drop in salary. It's for a games company. Um, Don't know how long it's going to last. Shall we give it a go? And Jane was like, Well, look, as much as you're enjoying uh, this, you know, sitting in your little nerd cube writing stuff about pointers and sort algorithms and all this lot. I can see you're bored. Um, Give it a go. We'll see how long it lasts. You know, this is where I am now. After all these years, we've still been giving it a go. And it's uh, a career that has seen me meet amazing people work in all sorts of different places We've been able to play with amazing toys and licenses, go around the world, literally, and, uh, yeah, we're still giving it a go, and it's been uh, one hell of a roller coaster ride. So that's kind of it. So I, I, I uh, went and joined uh, Gremlin Graphics in their little Derby office, uh, working as a graphic artist.
2: What was a typical day like at Gremlin?
0: Um, it was, you know, on, uh, get, on get on the bus, head, head, into, uh, uh, head into Derby, down the corridor, make a big tray full of uh, cups of tea, and uh, the seven or eight of us sit there and and and, uh, and make games uh, as, as as quickly as possible um, say so I was um, uh, for the for the early part I think myself and Terry uh, spent our time the, the office with this big long kind of almost like a corridor really with uh, made out of standard you know kind of office um, ceiling tiles floor tiles and 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 uh, and, and walls and as I recall, it was it was sort of um, partitioned off a little bit at one end. There was like a small kind of what might have been a storeroom or whatever like that kind of thing at one end and then the, the uh, main room. So in the main room, all the programming guys sat, and me and Terry sat in uh, this little tiny sort of uh, 12-foot square sort of what would have been a storeroom with a window. Back to back, both on uh, Atari ST's, um, clicking away at uh, pixels, I was using uh, OCP Art Studio on um, uh, the Atari because that was the, the one package that was really dedicated to sprite graphics and animation yeah. on, on the Atari. It was really, really easy. And um, what I then found that I ended up doing was I, I got from the, the, the programming guys uh, the specs for their various different you know, sprites and character things, so what I ended up doing was starting to write my own tools so I could draw the art, arrange it how I wanted it, and then rip the uh, sprites in various different forms and just pass it by disk to the guys so that then there wasn't any of this horrible sort of faffing around with, right, now you've drawn the things, get them onto the host machine and then take them apart and all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of we did it. And... Um, the, I, the one thing that I, I do have a memory of, of, uh, of, of Gremlin in those days of me and Terry would be sort of like, particularly after lunch, um, sitting there back to back clicking away and it would just be silence and you'd hear just a little bit of a patter of keys and at one point or other, one of the two of us would just go, oh, mouse clicks. Because the silence, apart from that, was deafening. And we just sort of lost ourselves in this little world of pixels, of both longer and sixty-four pixel high musculature and stuff like that. Um, so, so yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know. And and at that point, we were sort of uh, knocking off at five thirty and stuff like that. And maybe had a couple of late nights uh, whilst we uh, making uh, making the game, but uh, just at the at the end of it. But generally, it was. You know, like a nine to five job where you're getting paid and you, you're making uh, making games.
1: Um, well, you you mentioned Masters so, of the Universe was the first project that you were working on there. I mean, obviously, I remember the movie came out, didn't it? And that was a really really big film. I mean, how did they get the the license for that then? Being like a new company, I I, I don't know. Um, I just arrived and they were going, we're making this Masters of the Universe film. It's based
0: on you know you know the the Dolph Lundgren film. They had a stack of um, photos, probably about. Maybe about 250 4x6 uh, Polaroid, uh, not Polaroid, but uh, photographs like this uh, of just sort of publicity shots and shots from the set and stuff like that kind of thing. They'd seen the rough cut of the movie and they were well into production making this game. So I just sort of turned up like, what do you want me to draw? Uh, eight directions of, of He-Man walking down a street from, from a helicopter view. We need a, a view of, you know, this sort of like, because it was... The the game that they were made was um, there was a, a sort of a top down section which then led to loads of little mini games, little fighting mini game, little Operation Wolf Star mini game. Um, so I ended up sort of picking up bits and pieces here and there. And yeah, whatever. What does Skeletor look like? Oh, it looks like this. And so I was sort of draw, drawing those bits and pieces whilst they were making the game. So I, it really was a sort of hit the ground running. We're in the middle of something. Just support us. Um, the one. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the one thing about kind of like where we were technology-wise at that point was we needed a um, title screen. Of course, you're drawing all of your art with mouse at that point. Mm-hmm. No digitizing hardware available, no scanners, no nothing. And so it was like, how do I draw this complicated, you know, kind of gorgeous, um, I think it was a Drew Struzan um, uh movie poster actually thinking about it right you know the guy that did indiana jones i think it was uh, one of his you know sort of uh, paintings for the uh, for the for the movie poster how do i get that on an atari screen so um i kind of sat there with a with a mouse trying trying to copy it and i kind of gridded it up with just sort of a grid and oh it was failing horribly and <laughs> i was like you know what if i make the grid small enough I can probably do this. So I got a huge piece of tracing paper and drew something like, you know, a two millimeter grid on the tracing paper, stuck it down onto this big poster. And then for two days, went (laughs) pixel by pixel by pixel, grid by grid by grid, just clicking an approximate color, you know, hand scanning, hand digitizing effectively, uh, this poster got it within, you know, sort of 75% scaled it out a little bit because my grid had been off and everything was a bit tall and thin, and then filled in the rest. That is nuts. Um, But it was, (laughs) you know, it was bonkers, but it got me the result that I wanted, you know, and it was the, the easiest way to do it. It was like I could spend two days cursing, you know, not being able to make my hand move or whatever. I could just sit here, switch my brain off and click, 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 click.
1: Well, obviously, after Gremlin, your next big move was to the now legendary core design, how did you make that move then? Where did that story start?
0: So what happened was I'd been working at Gremlin for a few uh, a few months, um, and uh, Gremlin hit a crash uh, no, a cash crisis, and they had to uh, start making some cuts. And one of the cuts was uh, cutting the Derby office, and they sort of offered us all redundancy, or we could go and uh, work up in Sheffield. And of course, like uh, having an eighty mile around, uh, round trip every day was like, nah, don't don't fancy that. We'll take the money and we'll work out what to do. And, in those sort of like last days, uh, Jeremy Smith, Kevin Norburn, and Greg Holmes got together, and, uh, and and say Jeremy was the sales manager at Gremlin at that time. Uh, Kevin was one of the co- uh, the original founders of Gremlin, and and uh, Greg was uh, like our office manager and. And and basically, Dad, at uh, at, at Gremlin, um, they all pitched together and said, "Look, you know, we're going to set. A, uh, we'd like to set up a company. Would you guys like to work for us here? Just carry on doing what you're doing." It was like, "Yeah, right then." So um, basically, we you know we finished uh, finished Gremlin, and then a couple of days later, just came back in the office, and course started from there. Um, the other side of it was we were able to pitch original ideas. Um, so I remember, um, sitting there in those very, very early days with, uh, Terry in the back room where we were going, right, let's, let's write down on a piece of paper what's been done lately. And we were kind of like, I can distinctly remember, um, Capcom's black tiger had just been out in the arc. Yeah. So we were like, okay, won't do a swords and sorcery thing. Won't do a space thing. Won't do a this. Da, da, da. You know, what's not been done for a long while. Like an Indiana Jones game. Yeah. Those, uh, you know, the, the games that have been out were just sort of like quite generic and the arcade games were okay, but nobody'd ever got that idea of that very first, you know, sort of um, few minutes of, the, of Raiders where Indies run in hell for leather, you know, being attacked with traps, rolling balls and all this kind of stuff. And so it's like, you know what, we could do kind of a game based around that. So I started to doodle these little characters. I remember was it Joe Blade had come out on the spectrum at the time with these yeah. little squashed characters? And I thought, oh, that's really cool. Reminded me of a Spanish artist, Mordillo, who used to create a, all these amazing um, super detailed posters with all these little characters in back in the 70s. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, we could do that. So I started doodling these little sort of squished characters. And we were like, well, could we do, you know, rolling boulders, spike pits and all this sort of stuff? And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. Each one of these things is just a sprite and generally speaking these sprites are still at the start you walk into a box and when you walk into an invisible box on the screen they start moving whether it's rolling to a pattern on the screen or flying off or shooting at you and things like that and then i was like well you know and those sprites can either be deadly at the start or not or solid at the start or not and everything and, and within that afternoon i'd kind of come up with a way that we could make all of these sort of indiana jones type traps From basically a sprite, a collision box, and a bunch of flags. And so I sort of sat there with Terry going, right, okay, then um, think of another thing. And it was like, okay, crushing ceilings. Oh, right, okay, this is one of these. Rolling boulders. And, you know, spike pitch, you get stuck in a thing, spikes hit you, bat comes down. All bits and pieces. And every time Terry would pitch something out, I was like, well, you could set it up like this. And you could. So we came up with this idea that became Rip Dangerous. The name I didn't realize. Up until many years later, I'd probably picked up in the ether uh, there was the uh, the Dangerous Brothers, Rick Mail and.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He did,
0: and some did back on uh, Friday Night Live. Yeah. And Rick and Vivian Dangerous. <laughs> ah, there So, you go. for some reason or other, Rick Dangerous must have stayed in my brain and it kind of came out as the name there, and I was totally unaware of it until many years later. I was like, oh, hi. You know, that must have snuck its way in. <laughs> so, we pitched that to jeremy he went yeah okay then took it round and um and we got you know somebody said yeah you can go off and make that so to me it's,
2: it's like not- um it's like a tomb raider in 2d you know you've yes. kind of got these traps you've got to work stuff out and it's got oh, a, yeah, 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 yeah. a lot yeah. more well, than no the mistake standard that, that, platformer you know
0: um and i mean some somebody many years ago and i think there's a link after it on my website went um yeah i i, I it would be it, it had sort of independently looked at it and went I think Rick Dangerous is probably, you know, kind of Lara's great uncle. And it's no mistake that a tomb raiding related thing came out of Core many years later, because after Rick Dangerous, it felt for a big, long time that I was being asked to remake and remake and remake and remake that in some shape or form for many years because we'd had a success with it. And it was like, hey, you do this. You know, sort of thing, and you're going, yeah, but I want to do more stuff. I've already done one of those. I want to do more stuff. I want to advance. I want to go on. So the thread, the desire to make a to recapture that Indiana Jones, Rick Dangerous thing, would have had, would have played into uh, a receptiveness to doing a, a an indie game. But you know, I mean, credit to to, to Toby for bringing. The art that he did do that kind of set the whole thing in motion and stuff like that. But I think it kind of, I think Rick laid some of the groundwork that, you know, many years later, it's like, yeah, we should do one of those things. Because there were circumstances along the way, it was like, could we make another game with a man with a... I want to do 3D. I want to do something that's not a man running along a platform and jumping again, you
1: know. (laughs) Well, there was one game that you mentioned, you know, like really unique art there, and one game that um, you were involved with it called Bubba and Sticks. I thought that had such an original look to that game. Where did the concept of that game come from then? Well, you see, (laughs) right, yeah. So we made uh, made Rick
0: Dangerous. I'd become a programmer on Rick Dangerous uh, 1, and I did a load of programming from then on, because actually Rick was my full, my first... Full-time, 100% machine code game. And uh, we ended up doing Rick's sequel. I then went on to do Wolfchild, Child, which was another push to, to to try and get more realistically proportioned graphics and all this stuff. Come to the end of Wolfschild Child, and uh, Jeremy uh, had got this idea. It was like, at that time, rotoscope graphics were sort of kicking around.
1: Yeah, flashback so, and, and Prince of Persia yeah, and all that, wasn't it? Yeah, flashback and stuff
0: like that kind of thing, where you had p- lots of programmers running up and down car parks with uh, cameras tracing over the screen and, and stuff like that. And uh, Jeremy came to me and said, like, I've got this idea. We, we kind of film all of the graphics, and we have this guy. He's kind of like an Indiana Jones kind of guy. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and ha, um, and, and he's got this stick, and he can do all of these things with a stick. And I was just like, I don't want to do one of these anymore. I don't have done enough platform games. Everybody's making 3D, there's Thunderhawk, there's all of these things, and I, to make, I don't want to make another platform game. And I was looking at the, the prospect of doing these digitized graphics, and I was thinking I can do them, but they look, personally, I always thought they looked horrible, you mm-hmm. know, sort of thing. When they were done well for the time, they, they worked, but you know, most often than not, they were a bit nasty. And, and you could still tell it was a programmer running up and down inside a car park um, and stuff. And the other th- aspect of it was, what could you do with a stick? Because, you know, it's all it's a physical object of, of sort of like a, a tangible length. So you could have a, a, a stick, which, you know, a couple of feet long, poke it in things and maybe throw it and then it would fall on the floor and you'd have to go and pick it up. Um It could be a staff, so you could fight with it and you could do things and maybe you could use it as a bit of a crowbar and you could poke it in things and stuff. Or if you wanted to be like acrobatic, because these games were, you know, all about acrobatic stuff like that, you'd want to be able to pole vault with it and use it to sort of like brace your fall when you're you're dropping down a chasm or something like that kind of thing. In which case it would need to be at least twice the character's height and then you've got, you know, kind of, a mixture of Daly's, Thompson's, Decathlon meets Flashback meets Rich Dangerous. And I was like, I don't know, really. This is, I just can't, I could, just couldn't visualize it. So I kind of put it off for a while. and went off and did a few other bits and pieces. But instead still kept coming back to this thing. And, I, you know, say the lure of let's make another kind of Indiana Jones title or whatever was there. And I'm thinking, well, I've got to at least explore the idea. There may be something in it, but I don't know what it is. So at that point, I've been working with Billy Allison. He and I are still friends to this day. He's a loveliest chap, so generous with his time and super talented. Um, and he'd come from the world of um, children's TV animation uh, and stuff. And um, so he and I shared an office for a long while and we really hit it off. And one of the things that I was amazed with was his ability to draw and, and animate. Um, so I was like, and, and and Billy was very very willing to to teach if you're if you you know interested. So I just bugged him and I was like, Billy, why does your drawing look better than mine? Why does your animation look better than mine? Why does you do this that and the other and stuff like this kind of thing? And he, he he spent hours with me teaching me all about how to sketch, how to see three dimensions in a 2D drawing, how to you know put anatomy in there but not too much anatomy. Reminds me uh, a lot of his stuff reminds me of uh, 1970s British comics like wizard and chips and whoopee and that sort of stuff with big goop crazy googly-eyed monsters and stuff like that yeah. kind of thing and he keep drawing all of these these things and, and we hit it off and we were like well jeremy wants to do this kind of rotoscope you know um man with a stick game what's on the end of the stick vic because of course vic reeves night <laughs> out about that point um
2: great show. and
0: uh we we were like well i don't know well so we came back to uh my house one tuesday evening each of us with a bottle of Budweiser and a massive piece of paper and some some pencils, right, right. okay, let's just write down all the things we think you can do with a stick. So we started drawing all these cartoons, so we did all of the things, the pole vault and all this kind of thing. And as the night went on, the ideas got sillier and sillier. (laughs) The more Budweiser
1: you had probably, yeah?
0: Yeah, so we had probably about 40 drawings, You like use it as a snorkel, use it as a flute, Use it, you know, poke it into this thing, throw it at that. It comes back to you and everything like that. So we would come up with this this uh, this idea of this man with a stick. So we went into Jeremy's office the following day and went, well, we've had a look at this thing. And, you know, this idea of a rotoscope, realistic kind of, I suppose, pitfall kind of Indiana Jones. You're so limited, you know, in what you can do because it has to be a physical stick. And we kind of came up with these ideas, but they're just too mad, really. He went, I like that. And we're like, really? Yeah, you should make that. It's full of, like, cool stuff and everything. You can do that, can't you? We're like, oh, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> We'd actually kind of, you know, shown what we could do. So uh, we then uh, uh, sat down and, and kicked it off. So myself, I, I took the uh, the background art and uh, a lot of the sort of level design sort of stuff Billy took on all of the animation stuff. I ended up doing a few bits of sort of effects animation as well kind of thing uh, under his supervision, balloons popping and stuff like that. He took on the character work, and then we had uh, Mark Watson and John Kirkland doing all the coding for us. And we sat in a little tiny room and sent ourselves mad for about nine months. Um, The initial idea that uh, Billy had for the character was there was a a little green alien called Elvis who was sort of... um, uh, very, very, very sort of tall and thin, because at that point, all uh, game characters were small, square or spherical. They were sort of Sonic the Hedgehog size mm-hmm. kind of things. And th- there's good reason for that because of, you know, kind of how how much screen height and clearance you have to keep above the characters. If they crouch down, you can crouch them into a ball and stuff like that kind of thing. But anyway, Billy wanted to to take that on. And came up with this idea of a character that was really, really, this, had this really tall and thin aspect. Um, we, at one point or other, I think uh, somebody had said, oh, you know, the alien, you think you could make it uh, a person? So uh, Billy changed it and the guy was, uh, the little guy resembled the one that was in the, in the final game, but was kind of like Yorkshire, flat cap and, um, you know, kind of belt and braces
1: type. <laughs> All right
0: he was he was there for for a little while as the character and then there was some more feedback could you kind of make him sort of american or something like that
1: kind uh, of have thing? you still got any of that early concept kind of art and stuff um
0: actually if you go to uh billy's website b l i mation i think it is .com billy's got a load of the original concepts oh wow that.
1: that'd be amazing to see yeah
0: i think you really enjoyed that time that we had together um And uh, so he he kind of uh, he he then developed the character that then became known as Bubba, which was this sort of like, you know, uh, baseball cap wearing dungaree wearing little goofball. Um, And we cooked up some we needed to take him to an alien planet. and We had the idea that he'd been abducted, stuck in an alien zoo and he wanted to escape. And the, the device that we'd had with the stick was to make the stick an alien so then we could ha- legitimately have the alien come back to you we could have the alien act we could have the alien change size change function and things like that kind of thing so we had this kind of strange kind of buddy um uh, sort of uh thing where the 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 primary object was a little character in the game we cooked up a character of waldo which was uh this sort of alien that was to Kind of wily e. coyote style pop up in a few set pieces in the game, and um, Billy just went all out with the crazy animation inspirations from Ren and Stimpy as well as uh, the, the stuff that he was doing so there's a lot of like Chris Falusi's uh, stuff in all of those really crazy poses where he kind of gets electrocuted and
1: oh it, of, it had such wonderful personality that game even like in the background seeing like you know eyes blinking in the bushes and like the trees yes. that followed you along and all that kind of stuff it was I'd never yes, seen anything yeah. like like cartoon standard before on, on an Amiga
0: yeah so that was that was the whole whole thing so we just sort of went for it you know kind of thing and I had uh, sort of Billy supervising me and how to how to how to improve uh, improve the the art. And one of the challenges, actually, from me doing the background stuff, was drawing all of that stuff in that sort of two and a half p aspect, uh, where you're seeing both the top of the platform and the side of it. So you're not looking just edge on like you were with uh, um, Dangerous. So that was kind of a bit of a technical challenge. Um, and then the other side of it was to try and step back the amount of detail in the in the background, because, you know, you look at something like Rick uh, and those early titles. um, You know, the whole idea is to saturate those little uh, area of pixels with as much detail as possible and then repeat as many big carpets of pixels all across the screen. With Bubba, it was like, you know, totally wind that back big areas of flat color to get that kind of cartoony look. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of um, invented this oddball puzzle game where you ended up having to work your way through. We ended up with uh, uh, a number of levels in there. I, I can remember we, we did build an entire one that we ditched because it was just way too obscure and too complicated. Because, of course, when you're, you're sort of deciding on the theme of the level, sometimes you're like, OK, then, well, it's really obvious. You've got four doors to open and four keys to get and they will be here, here and here. And if you have that insider knowledge going into the into the game, uh, and you build it, you automatically know it. But when you start thinking at it from the point of view of the player who has none of that, even the most seemingly obvious stuff to you is really obscure. And in fact, you know, kind of thing. There are certain things I will admit uh, now in, uh, in in Bubba that going back and playing it to today, you kind of go, I, I can kind of understand that. You know, I think the uh, the, the level that uh, always sticks in my mind for this was the one where you're inside the alien ship and you have to get four different aliens from different lure them or, or coerce them from different sort of parts of the spaceship and get them to other doors or, or switches in other parts of the spaceship kind of thing uh, across floors and when you're designing it, it all makes sense but when you have to visualize it knowing nothing coming into it it's a bit of an mask, you
1: know. So. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, um, I do do. A, I use a walkthrough when I play it these days. I must admit, I do cheat a bit. <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: sort of thing. But say it is one of those kind of things. Of and with a lot of the these these games, uh, like when we were making Rick, we didn't realise we were making it that hard. It's only in in hindsight you go, well, you know, actually addressing the Rick Dangerous difficulty question, which is something I always get asked about, was we kind of went in going, we want to make the Indiana Jones thing and full of surprises. And what we did was we took all of the sort of um, one hit and you're dead platforming aspect from Jet Set Willy and all those other games and married the two together. Well, of course, the thing about kind of Jet Set Willy and all those other games is that they rely on repeatable, predictable patterns. So you see a thing moving left and right on the screen. You know, it's going to be moving left and right on the screen as you enter the the screen. And, you know, it's going to be when you, you leave it. And it's all about your timing with respect to that. Rick Dangerous, you turn up. Any one of all of these things can just kick off and kill you in an instant. And you're having to react, at, you know, at lightning speed for it. So we managed to kind of give the experience of creating this spring loaded pit of death. But in hindsight, looking back, you know, kind of a quarter of a century later, what we'd actually done was created this really um, crazy memory game that was disguised as a platform game because it was all about repeating that exact precision, you know, learning by trial and error the route or just getting lucky occasionally and then being able to replicate that kind of thing. And then, oh, you know... and and having the, the fast turnaround, which meant more and more go. So I um, I am, uh, um, you know, blessed to have entertained so many people and grateful for all the nice things that everybody's be, uh, said about Rick. Uh, I also sympathize with everybody who put their foot through the TV and hate the game for all it's worth,
1: because
0: it really was, you know, sort of like video game Marmite. And we kind of made it that way because you were kind of going off what you thought you knew, you know, sort of thing.
1: Well, Simon, it's been amazing catching up with you. I know we're coming towards the end of our time together, so we just want to say, you know, there's a couple of guys that grew up playing your games um, when we were kids, and it's just amazing to get a bit of an insight into just how you know how these games were created and
2: the innovativeness, yeah, them as well.
1: It's, it, it's amazing you're as sane as you are today, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever want to want to want to hook up
0: again on another Saturday morning and. And, and go on and, and, and talk more. I'm only too happy to.
1: Absolutely. It's Excellent. been fascinating. If people want to keep up to date with what you're up to these days, then um, is there any way they right. can visit? Okay. Well, say so from core, I went to Acclaim. from Acclaim, I went to EA
0: and uh, worked on Harry Potter from EA. I then worked and worked at criterion games. And um, then about two and a half years ago, left EA to join up with uh, Alex Ward, Fiona Sperry, uh, guys that I work with at Criterion to form Three Fields Entertainment. And Three Fields were a very, very tiny little company um, uh, based down at Petersfield in Hampshire. And it's kind of uh, creating uh, n- uh, new but fun uh, games that are, you know, have got their heart in the arcades and all of the sort of stuff that we grew up with. Coming back to this, I'm now working from uh, my home up here in Derbyshire, uh, pretty much full time. I pop down and see those guys. um, But I've now got the free reign to basically shape my job however I like. So I'm in a situation where I have done bits and pieces of uh, programming and I'm certainly doing a load of uh, logic scripting now in in Unreal. Uh, I'm doing uh, artwork uh, and and stuff like that kind of thing. Um, So... The game that we have uh, just shipped was Dangerous Golf, uh, which came out on um, Xbox, P- uh, PS4, and uh, PC, in which you uh, play a game of golf indoors, smashing up stuff with loads and loads of physics, really high-end physics, liquid simulations, and uh, and things like that. And I uh, I spent a lot of time doing lots of animation and front end work and. Uh, and and, and uh, art for that kind of thing, uh, and then we have just completed uh, Lethal VR for the HTC Vive, and uh, in which uh, you um, uh, play a VR simulation of being on a, a sort of high-tech FBI gun range. So uh, that's been uh, what I've been doing uh, of late. So yeah, just having a, an amazing time doing that, and I think uh, on uh, Monday I'll be uh, I'll, I'll be. Putting finishes to a few finishing touches to uh, the PSVR version uh,
1: of Lethal, and we're looking to what our next uh, next game will be. Well, Simon, we'll pop notes to um, all your current projects in our show notes on our website as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this week. You're welcome.